Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Alan Acosta and Jocinda Hudson, who are co-editing the new Conduct and Community book, which is a partnership between Akuho I and ASCA. There's also a third editor on that book, which is Ryan Holmes. He's not able to join us for the show today, but if you're interested in hearing from Ryan, you can go back and listen to one of our previous episodes where he talks a lot about social justice and its intersection with student conduct. Ellen Acosta is one of the Associate Deans of Students at Florida State University, supervising the Office of New Student and Family Programs and the Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities. His work includes managing campus and student crises and helping create a safe, welcoming campus community. He believes in the necessity of growing college students into ethical, global leaders for the future, weaving diversity and inclusion into the work he does. Alan has been actively involved in ACPA, College Student Educators International, for over 10 years. He's currently the chair of ACPA's Commission for Student Conduct and Legal Issues. Alan was the coordinator for ACPA's Voices of Inclusion Medallions for four years, which recognizes the work of individuals and institutional programs dedicated to increasing inclusivity on college campuses. Alan has been involved in the Association for Student Conduct Administration for eight years, serving as the Educational Initiatives Chair for the Association's 2016 Annual Conference. Alan enjoys spending time with his partner Danielle and their two cats, Ninja and Buster. He loves watching professional wrestling and sports, cheering for the Golden State Warriors, Oakland Raiders, and San Francisco Giants. He enjoys reading books and watching movies. Jocinda Hudson is the Associate Director of Housing for Residence Life and Education at the University of Florida. She directly oversees conduct and community standards and students of concern programs. Jocinda received her master's degree from Texas A&M University in 2002 and is currently a doctoral candidate in higher education administration at the University of Florida. She has worked in housing as an assistant director of residence life at Vanderbilt and a residence director at Northern Arizona University. Jocinda has presented at conferences on topics such as legislative issues, mental health concerns, conflict coaching, and training of housing conduct officers. In 2015 and 2016, Jocinda served on the faculty of the ASCA Gehring Academy. She's been published as a chapter author in the Campus Housing Management book, sponsored by Akuho I, the International Journal of Doctoral Studies, and is co-editing the forthcoming book, Conduct and Community, sponsored by both ASCA and Akuho I. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Jocinda Hudson and Alan Acosta. Jocinda serves as the Associate Director of Residence Life and Education at the University of Florida, and Alan Acosta serves as the Associate Dean of Students at Florida State University. Welcome. Happy to be here. So, Alan and Jocinda, I'm really excited to talk with you both today because you are both currently serving as editors for the new Akuho I ASCA book project, and we're going to dig into the details about the book, which is entitled Conduct and Community. I also want to throw out there for the listeners that we have a third editor on that project. His name is Ryan Holmes, and you may have heard him previously on this podcast. Uh, Ryan's not able to join us today, but I know Alan and Jocinda will represent the book very well. So I'm hoping that we can start with your journeys, though. So Jocinda, can you tell us how you got to your role at Florida? Well, actually, a grad student forwarded me the position description. We were both kind of looking for our next step, but um, I've always been kind of a a res lifer. I started out actually, though, um, in admissions at a two-year technical community college. 
Um, but I've had numerous positions in housing from northern Arizona, Vanderbilt, and then to Florida. Of course, you only think, oh, I'm going to spend three to five years here. And 10 years later, I'm still at Florida. So it's one of those, um, you know, something fits, you just stay. Absolutely. I think we hear those stories a lot where uh, folks in higher ed are just like, oh, I'm going to be here for five minutes. And then (laughs) several years later, we're still um, hanging out in those roles doing awesome work. Yeah, well, the weather doesn't hurt either. Oh, definitely not. Florida weather, I'm very jealous. Um, I'm not missing the Northeast, though. It's uh, NYU closed today for snow, and I am no longer living there. So, you know, it's all good. Uh, Alan, how did you get to your role? Well, I'm actually going to also chime that uh, the plan was originally to be at Florida State for about three years or so and move on. And, well, there you go, 11 and a half years later. Um, I started out... um, uh, out of grad school, uh, looking for that entry-level housing job. And uh, when I finished my search, I was lucky enough to be at Florida State as a residence coordinator. Um, did that gig for three years, and right towards the end of my third year, the department had some folks transition to outside and inside the university at the mid-level positions, and I was fortunate enough to be selected uh, to be assistant director for residence life for about five years, and so I oversaw a variety of different things, including the conduct process for uh, the department in partnership with the Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities. And then uh, in September of 2014, I transitioned into my current role as Associate Dean of Students, and our Dean of Students Department has six functional areas, and I've uh, at some point, had some responsibility in all of them. Right now, I supervise the Office of Student Rights and Responsibilities, new student and family programs, and withdrawal services. All right. Well, it's so great to hear that you both have careers that have blossomed through the housing and the in the conduct world to some of these more mid-level, bordering on senior-level positions. Uh, I think our listeners would really benefit from knowing how you both ended up as co-editors on this book project. How did that happen for you? Well, um, Akuai and ASCA in, I think it was April of 2017, put out a a statement letting folks know that they were doing a book and they were looking for editors and contributing authors. And if, Jocinda, correct me at any point here if I misspeak, uh, the call mentioned uh, wanting a resume and a writing sample and some description of professional experience. And so... I think that was due to Kauai and ASCA towards the end of April, early May 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one day, our, our wonderful colleague at Kauai, James Bellman, uh, reached out and said, hey, we'd love, based on what we've seen of your professional experience and your writing and uh, what you bring to the mutual associations, if you all would edit the book. Yeah, and I believe Martha Compton and from ASBA and Vaughn Stange from I were both uh, helping uh, James and I believe Jennifer kind of determine who the editors might be. So thanks to them, um, we were selected out of, I believe, um, about 80 applicants. That is super exciting. Uh, have either of you had writing experience in the past? I did. I, um, I had previously published in the Campus Housing Management series, um, book four, no, book two, chapter four. I did a a chapter on conduct in housing and residence life. 
for that project that came out in 2013. So I had worked on an Akuoi project before, um, and I've also done some uh, publishing um, uh, qualitative study on women's perception, international women's perceptions of their graduate school experience. And how about you, Alan? For me, I hadn't done anything too formal. I had done just a little bit of writing here and there, uh, like for the Southeastern Association of Housing Officers, uh, quarterly report, things of that nature. So this was one of my first big ventures into publishing. In the process of editing this book last year, I, I did get an article published in the Journal of College and Character. Um, so that... that I. I had that going on just slightly before getting into into this experience. So how have you found that editing is a little bit different than academic writing? It is really hard to manage, um, I believe, such talent because you're like, wow, I never would have thought of that. Or we've got so much things we could be like two books. You know, I, I think that it's information overload at times where with my academic writing, I felt a lot of times that I was like pulling teeth is like, oh, I have to do so many more words, so many more pages. With this, it's just so much fun, um, but challenging to sift through all of the information and see the great work that people in both AQI and ASDA are doing for um, our student communities. It's just, it's just been really interesting. I think for me, the the biggest difference is that. Way somewhat to Jocinda's point, we're not in most of these chapters, quote unquote, creating the content. We gave all of the contributing authors and all of the chapters some parameters, some outcomes, some this is what we would like to see accomplished in the chapter, and then it was in the contributing author's hands. And then we got a draft. And so um, in this respect, with most of my writing, I know my voice, and I know how I like to write, and I know my process and how I approach it. Um, here, it's helping other authors find their voice and shaping their story in their chapter in a way that both is true to who they are as authors while also serving the purpose that we need for the book to accomplish. Um, and so that's been really, really different for me. And I'd like to add to that that we chose our chapter authors a little different than other projects have done before, especially through AKUI. It wasn't so much of individuals were proposing a chapter. We had already outlined what we wanted the book to kind of look like. What did we think would be a well-rounded practitioner's manual? And so we paired individuals up based off of their experience, we wanted a balance of conduct and residence life and housing folks. And so with that, we've got some very seasoned writers, and we've also got some very um, new writers. This might be the first time that they've been published um, anywhere. And so it was really interesting to see that growth and that dynamic between, between people who had never met or never talked to each other, and now they're writing a chapter together. And I think it went... It was an experiment that went much better than it than I expected, and I think people are pretty surprised at how fruitful it was. So let's step back a second and start with what is the thesis for the book, or who is the audience, and what are we hoping the book achieves for the profession? 
I would say that what we were looking for, contact and community, there was a huge hole in um, materials that would be very um, centralized almost of uh, how do you do conduct in housing and residence education in what do hall directors do? What do area coordinators do? How do you work with the dean's office? What are some of the, the ways that we need to train our staff? And so lots of folks did it really well at lots of different institutions, but nobody felt confident that they were doing it, you know, a best practice way. There was never one kind of seminal work that would put that together. And I think that's really what we were striving for is looking at something if no one knew how to do conduct at all in housing, they could look at this book and kind of figure out, okay, these are the steps I need to take, or I need to find out more about this, or this is a way to start um, some conversations about training. Um, we want it to be very practical. It has a lot of addendums. It has a lot of case studies. We have included discussion questions. It's a practitioner's guide. It can be used whole, or it could be used chapter by chapter. Whichever. Alan, what would you say? I would add to that, in terms of who is the audience for the book, I would say it's anybody at all who has any kind of interest in either conduct or residence life or the joining of the two. I think there's lots of information in all of these chapters that um, conduct-specific people will resonate with and connect to. I think there's a lot in all the chapters that um, res life professionals exclusively will connect to. And I think, uh, I think it was Patience Bryant at uh, the ASCA annual conference a couple of weeks ago who, who said it during a session we had on the book, The Best, when she said that she really hopes that members of both associations and people who have their positions in, in both universes read it so that way they can understand more about the other universe. So conduct people should read the book so that way they can understand a little bit more about what it looks like in housing, in residence life, for residence life professionals. And res life professionals should read it and understand a little bit more about what conduct folks tend to work on and deal with uh, on a regular basis. The book is not going to be completely exhaustive on either, but it's going to have a lot of great information for both that I think lots of professionals will be able to walk away with something. Let's talk about content a little bit more. You've mentioned a couple of times that there are chapters that could um, be used by practitioners, either standalone or in whole. So what are the chapters that we can expect to read about? So we have 10 chapters right now, um, not including an introduction or a conclusion. Um, so I'll run through them real quick, and, and Joe, please chime in and share more uh, as we go along. Establishing and building community. Um, and so we wanted to talk a little bit about how student conduct inside the residence halls can, in fact, be a great community builder. Uh, we talk about determining conduct philosophy. How do people want to approach how conduct is facilitated and administered and implemented inside the residence halls? Um, we have a chapter dedicated to state and federal laws and how those laws have implications for conduct processes, particularly and specifically in the residence halls. We have one all about preparing housing and conduct staff and going through training and preparation and all the things that um, folks would need to know to be ready to help uh, staff with conduct in their particular operation. 
We have a chapter dedicated to crafting and revising conduct processes, um, all about either completely creating from scratch or revising an already existing conduct process. Um, we have a chapter dedicated towards um, conduct and social justice and how social justice dynamics and issues show up and have uh, impact and influence in conduct in the residence halls. There's a chapter on student mental health and conduct um, and looking at the particular issues that uh, connect student conduct and mental health. Um, there's going to be a chapter, and it just got renamed, on um, sanctioning, so determining sanctions and how, if a student is found responsible through the conduct process, residence halls could develop sanctions that are appropriate. Um, there's a chapter on conflict resolution, and so we thought that that was a that was, if I remember correctly, a chapter I think we added after we had gotten going because there was so much fruitful information specifically about conflict resolution that we thought would be relevant and important. And the last one is uh, an assessment chapter, and a chapter all on how to conduct assessment on the conduct process inside the residence halls. Joe, what did I miss? Well, we also talked about the chapter authors have put together some practical application materials, like I said, the case studies. Um, but the addendums also, we had some authors, Jill, you're one of them, that um, created some supplemental materials that will be in an addendum in the back of the book, which will serve as kind of uh, the resource bank for the book. And so we have a lot of addendum authors that were able to provide us with uh, case studies, success stories, spotlights on programs. Uh, I think we have some sample activities to do during training. And so that addendum will be very interesting. And hopefully, whether it's public or private, uh, any campus can see themselves in some of those activities. So, Jill, do and you want to tell us a little bit about your addendum that you did? Sure. I'm happy to share that. So I wrote um, not a very long appendix, but some information on specifically how to work with international students in a student conduct process, because we speak about our practice from an extremely westernized lens and a fairly ethnocentric American lens. Uh, so it was a guide for U.S. Mm -hmm. American practitioners to really look at their own identities and how they understand and maybe unintentionally marginalize our international students through our processes. Uh, and then I'm also working with Katika Harris who's the ASCA Director for Diversity and Inclusion, on including some practical exercises that staffs can do uh, to examine their own privilege and lenses of identity and intersectionality. So excited to put those out there. But I also know that there are many, many authors that have contributed. So would you be able to share the names and give credit for folks who have helped write? Yeah, I think I have this list right here. Is that okay, Alan? I'll go ahead. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, the list I have, I think we've added a couple people, so I forgive, forgive me if I leave some people out, but Sarah Kelly and Jennifer Forey are doing some supplements to the community building chapter. Allison Ouellette is doing a community college case study. Kira Martone, Valerie Randall-Lee, Lori Berry, Adam Ross Nelson, Bob Alston, Candace Johnston, Tina Torme, Katie Cadenhead, Kate Bowers, Amber Ulmer, excuse me, Eric Wessel, and Adam Ross Nelson is actually doing two um, supplements. One's a case study, and I think one's more of a case brief of um, some ADA policies. And Jordan McLinden um, did an addendum in the sanctioning chapter. 
Excellent. So I know that those uh, individuals have put a tremendous amount of their souls into this work. Um, you had spoken earlier that these were mostly collaborative. Can you talk a little bit about how authors were selected and also paired together to write these chapters? Well, um, looking at the selection, we did, like I said, wanted to do a balance of housing and conduct since it was a joint effort. And then looking also, we talked about the opportunity for younger authors maybe being coupled with someone that has lots of experience because we saw a lot of that. We saw there was a big dichotomy between those that had published quite a bit and then we had a bunch of folks that were practitioners who maybe published maybe CEHO reports, maybe talking sticks, but hadn't or hadn't published at all. So it was interesting to see if we could uh, put some up-and-coming staff persons with those that were already established to kind of role model and learn from each other uh, about some of the writing process, too. We wanted to also make sure that we had a diversity of types of institutions, both public and private. Uh, we've got a couple of community colleges that are represented, and we also have authors from Canada, which we were super excited to get. And so uh, looking at that, we were really trying to be broad enough that everybody could see themselves in the process. And so the chapter charges for each group was very much thinking about the public, the private, the, the different audiences that may be reading this book, um, not making it single student housing, undergraduate experience, and it has to be public centric. No, we wanted it to be applicable to lots of different types of campuses. I think that's amazing that you were able to get some of that uh, international perspective in there. Uh, is there anyone's voice that you feel like you wish you would have been able to include, but maybe weren't able to get into this particular edition? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I, uh, I have an answer. I, um, yeah, I go don't ahead. Feel, I don't feel like we, we focused as much on family housing, but family housing is kind of a dying community less and less campuses are having family housing. So when you're looking at institutional policies and communities that have children, um, children that may be going to school within the town and gown kind of community, um, you have a very different set of kind of expectations for living and duty to protect when you have people that are under the age of 18 in your call. Yeah, I think the only thing I can think of that I would add is, I, you know, I thought we did a pretty decent job of getting um, different institutional types, certainly public-private, four years, two years. I would have liked to have seen a, a couple more authors from some HBCUs and HSIs and some of those other non-quote-unquote non-traditional uh, institutional types. And in thinking about those, do you have an idea of um, where individuals who are seeking information specific to these institution types can currently go to find good information? And specifically with housing and conduct, I would say that it's an emerging field. I don't, I think that there's, um, like, I know that Doug Bell at the University of Houston, it's an HSI institution, and I think he would be a great resource. He's contributing to Chapter 10. Um, but as far as looking at these two issues that are being connected, I think it's emerging. I think that's a big window that we have that can be a new emerging area for research and, you know, practical application. 
And I would say that those are th- those types of institutions are also kind of they're starting to comprise a little bit more of the membership of both the associations associated with the book, Akua and ASCA. And I think um, how those associations continue to engage in and meet the needs of professionals that work at those institutions, as Joe mentioned, is ever evolving. And I'm hopeful that if we are ever allowed to do a second edition of this book in the future, those institutions hopefully will have enough connection with the associations as well as um, connection to the field to be even more represented in the future. As we think about this emerging area um, in the research and in the literature, what advice might you give an aspiring researcher or an aspiring academic writer on how to break into the writing world? Just right. Um, and that sounds so trite, so I apologize to anybody who just heard that. Um, I, but that the best advice I could give anybody on how to um, break into writing is to write and submit. Um, I think the three of us, Ryan, Joe, and I, feel humbled and, and really honored that we get to be a part of this project. And part of the reason we, we do is because we put our ourselves out there and said, we think we could do this and we want to do this. And all the contributing authors did the same thing. And so I would say for anybody who's looking to break into that, you know, find your voice, find the writing style that you like, um, and then uh, try to find a writing outlet uh, publisher that will allow that voice to be cultivated, nurtured, and potentially heard. I was very fortunate, as I mentioned earlier, to have a article published in a journal, and it was a great, perfect alignment of me, the the thing I was writing about, and the focus of the journal. And so when you can get those things together, that really goes a long way towards getting you in the door. And the other thing I'd say is not to get discouraged. I've submitted several pieces to many outlets for publication and been told no. And that can be sometimes hard to read because you feel such a personal attachment to the writing, even if it's academic in nature. You, I, I don't know about other folks, but I invest so much of myself personally into my writing that when somebody is like, thank you so much for submitting this, we're really not interested. It's like, oh, man, that, but it's so good. And um, so keeping that confidence to like go back in and say, yes, I'm going to go ahead and try to co-edit or be a contributing author in this publication, I think that is invaluable. I also want people to think about looking at uh, the presentations and trainings and the things you do at conferences, whether it's poster sessions or full-blown concurrent sessions. Those are outlines for articles. Those are outlines for things that you can write up and um, submit to any kinds of journal. ASBA has a blog. They've been asking for blog writers. That's one step. CEHO, Akuai, Talking Stick, a lot of the housing regionals have newsletters or magazines that you can contribute to, and they would love to have submissions. And, and Alan is totally correct. you got to put yourself out there to see it. Uh, one thing we did discuss during the conference was uh, the imposter syndrome, uh, feeling like, yeah, I'm... I'm an entry-level professional, or I've only been in the field for so many years, I don't have anything new to contribute. And we talked about, well, even if you feel like there's no new material, that doesn't mean the audience has heard it before. So not necessarily 
you have to come up with an original thought idea. You just have to have your spin on it because we want to hear how you're interpreting it. And I think that that's important to tell people is that you don't have to reach for the stars every single time. You just have to reach an audience and there's always going to be an audience out there. I really appreciate that advice in terms of you don't have to be the absolute end all be all expert on any given topic. You just have to be an expert on your own experience and have something that could be translatable to other individuals. I was just going to say to Joe's point, there's never been a better time to be um, wanting to publish or write in in, in the worlds of conduct or housing because there are so many more avenues with which you can go. And Joe mentioned mm-hmm. several of them that I strongly recommend um, that virtually online um, in other spaces um, that people can get their work out there. I think another great idea for people is if you're a master's student or a doctoral student, any paper you ever write for any class, you can always Um, spend more time, energy, and investment in and shape it into something that gets published later on. I think that's a great point as well, because a lot of our contributing authors to this project do not have their terminal degrees or are perhaps in process of completing. So I hear a a lot of um, aspiring writers thinking that because I'm not done with my PhD or EDD, that perhaps I'm, I'm not a good fit for writing. But we've learned that that is absolutely not the case. So can you give any words of encouragement for individuals who have not yet finished or haven't even started and still want to write? I Joe, you're doing it, right. so go for it. <laughs> yes. I'm in the process of trying to schedule my defense as we speak. But I would say my writing is better when I'm writing academically also, because it's fresh I've got a groove. I understand my writing style. I understand how I want to say what I need to say. So it's not like it's like you exercise a muscle. My muscle is toned. We're, we're good right now. Whereas, you know, if I was to say like five years ago when I wasn't at this stage in my dissertation and my PhD, um, my writing wouldn't have been at the same level. So sometimes while you're going to school is a good time Um, to do it because your writing muscle is in in shape. Our advisors may disagree on that, but I think that you're right, Jacinda. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that uh, I'm six and a half years into my doctoral program. Where are you at in yours? I am scheduling my defense. Final defense. I just emailed the doodle poll. And I I defended mine in September 2017. And so what I would tell folks who are interested in their um, terminal degree is the, the first thing, the most important thing is knowing that it's something that you want to do and are committed to doing it um, because it is definitely a journey and a process, but it's, it's a good one um, if, you're, if you're ready for it and you're excited about it and you can remember why you're doing it. Um, I, I would encourage everybody, um, if, if there's ever a concern about can I make it through the process, yes, you can. I did it... Um, uh, part-time while I was working full-time the entire time I did my, my dissertation process. Um, it's um, not always easy, and you got to prioritize your life and balance your time and still take care of yourself and, and do all the things that you need to do, uh, but you can do it, and you can uh, be successful. Um, I think something that's super important is studying something that you actually care about, that you would want to know, um, because that will 
help sustain you and keep you going forward when times are more difficult and it's it's harder to get into that writing space or to remember why you're doing it and especially when you get to the dissertation process and it's there are no deadlines there are, there's no structure it's however long it takes you to do the dissertation the research the writing it's always on you and so to keep motivated keep engaged keep connected um, having a topic that you you enjoy, that you're comfortable with, that you like, um, and having a, an advisor who will support you through that process all can lead to your success. I think we need to do another episode sometime on the PhD, EDD, JD journey. Uh, I think there's a lot of good, rich things that we could talk about here. Uh, but let's head back towards the book. And when can our listeners expect to be able to purchase that? Well, it should be coming out. Um, in June of this year, so June 2018, we hope to have it out and ready for order, um, and it should be at the Akulai Conference, which is in July um, at in Denver, Colorado. So we're hoping to showcase it at Akulai and have orders. I, I don't, Alan, we don't have any information about any pre-orders or anything, do we? No, James hasn't given us the the information on a pre-order, but de- definitely the the um, big launch, the big uh, uh, celebration, I guess, if you will, will be at a Kauai in Denver, July 7th through 10th. So if you're planning to be there or on the fence and, and you want to see more about the book, that's the place to go. Um, but it will definitely be uh, finally available, published uh, for purchase. Uh, I think James kind of indicated towards the end of June, and then it's after a cool a cool eye in July. It'll be off and running. Excellent. Yeah, and I will be at a cool eye. So please stop by, say hi to me. I'd love to see. Get you. a signed copy. <laughs> <laughs> signed by the editors. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So we like to close every podcast episode by asking our um, our guests what you are currently reading. Well, I am currently reading the Chicago Manual of Style. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I'm that. serious. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to get my formatting done. I am not reading for fun right now. So Chicago Manual of Style. If I'm lucky, I'll get to read my Entertainment Weekly. I got in the in the mail this week, so hopefully that'll happen. That's some serious self care reading right there. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, for me, since since Joe is working on that dissertation and, and, and has only got the Entertainment Weekly as a distraction. I'll actually give you three. The last book I finished, the book I'm reading now, and the next book I plan to read. Um, the last book I finished was um, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I highly recommend to anybody uh, for any reason if you like to read, and even if you're not really much of a reader, um, it's not terribly long. It is completely worth your time. Um, I like... Uh, I like biographies, in particular presidential biographies. Part of my bucket list is to read at least one biography of every U.S. president, and I'll read about any president regardless of whether or not my political beliefs align with them because I like to understand them and and learn more. And so right now I'm almost done with uh, George W. Bush's autobiography decision points. Um, And when I finish that, which hopefully will be this week, um, then I'm actually going to, I've never read it before, but, um, my partner tells me it's great. I'm going to read a wrinkle in time, um, and then probably go see the movie. That's on my list oh, right now too. <laughs> actually, it's in my Kindle right now. Oh, but we have a book club project coming up then I hear. 
<laughs> Sounds like Sounds it. Sounds like it. Uh, the last question I'll ask you both is if any of our listeners would like to get a hold of you or ask questions about the book, what's the best way to reach you? Well, the best way to reach me is just at my email address. Um, I am on the UF webpage. If you just type in Josinda, I'm the only one at UF, so <laughs> you can do that. But it's Josinda <laughs> at housing.ufl.edu. Uh, for me, there's two ways that are the best to get a hold of me. One is my email. It's um, aacosta at fsu.edu. Um, and then the other way is uh, you can find me on Twitter at alanacosta81. That's at A-L-A-N-A-C-O-S-T-A-8-1. And you can either at me or shoot me a, a DM and happy to chat with anybody. Is there a hashtag for the book? No. Oh, I don't think we've created one, have we? No, I don't think we have. That's a great idea. Look forward. Yeah, to we got to get with James on that. We 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 want uh, we want ASCA and Akuai to be comfortable with any ha- official hashtagging. So you check the Twitter universe, check the Instagram universe, look it out for it on Facebook. We'll 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 push it out in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And listeners, as always, if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can do so by tweeting us at ASCA Podcast. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Or you can always email us, ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Jocinda and Alan, for sharing your viewpoints today. Well, thank you, Joe. Appreciate it, Joe. Thanks so much. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Dr. David Karp. Dr. Karp will be speaking to us about restorative justice practices on college campuses and specifically how we might be able to use restorative justice practices to work with sexual misconduct related cases. We hope you come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com.